Well, if you've been with us, we have been through the book of 1 Peter. We are now coming to the end. Um, the book of 1 Peter was written to a group of people who were suffering, who were struggling. Literally, if you were a Christian during this time, you feared for your life. Um, you didn't go and slap a bumper sticker on your car because putting a bumper sticker on your car meant you were probably, the next trip you were going to take was probably to an arena. So there were some serious issues that these people were facing. It wasn't just somebody made fun of me at school or somebody made fun of me at work. I mean, there were serious ramifications for, for calling yourself a child of God or a believer, those kinds of things. And so Peter now, in this book, writes to these people to encourage them and to say, look, let me help you through these times. And, and he's, he's gone through a whole bunch of principles But this morning, he's going to basically wrap this whole thing up and tie a nice bow on it. And we're going to come to a verse this morning that really kind of summarizes the whole book in one verse. And I want you to kind of, as as you think about it, understand that he's built on all of this stuff. And now we come to the conclusion where he's saying, okay, here's here's what I want you to know. So with that in mind, um, we're going to start 1 Peter chapter 5 starting in verse 8. I was going to say, is that cutting in and out? Are we getting that? Huh? Is it doing funny things? It's not? All right. It's off. It's off. I think it's doing funny things, but but I've been on a plane yesterday. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to walk through sections of it. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls, prowls around looking like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a while, a little while, will himself restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever, Amen. And then he tags a little P.S. onto it, and here's what he says. <clears throat> uh, next one. Hey, Josh. Ooh, next one. Okay. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greeting. This is probably the church that Peter was from. Now, that's what a lot of people believe, that Babylon is, is just like the, you know, we have Holly Springs Bible Fellowship. Well, it was like Babylon Baptist, I don't know, uh, who has who chosen to get her, send you her greetings, and so does my son Mark, which would have been John Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. And then he ends it with this phrase, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, there's a lot in this passage, so let's walk back through it. Uh Let's throw back up verse 8, and we'll start there and just kind of walk through it. Be self-controlled and alert. Here's what Peter does. He talks about two things, internal, external. Internally, he says, be self-controlled. In other words, really look inside at what's driving you. Make sure that you are able to stay in control or spirit-controlled, if you will, following God each day. And then he says, be alert. Watch out. 
Keep your eyes open to what's around you. Um, anybody know what a, I've got to get this right, skite, I think it's called a skite. Is that what it is? Or shrike. It's shrike. That's what it is. It's a shrike. Does anybody know what a shrike is? It's a little bitty bird. Um, it's a small bird. Um, a shrike, his natural enemy, his natural predator is a hawk or a falcon. Uh, they do not like those things because those things really like shrikes. I'm told that in falconry, when they turn these things loose, one of the big issues they have with them is they fly so high that you can't see where they are. So one of the things that they do is they take a shrike and they put it in a cage and they take it with them out on the field. And here's why. The shrike can always see it. And the shrike always tilts its head in the direction of the hawk or the falcon. So the guy who's out there flying his bird keeps that little cage there because that shrike's always like, okay, he knows it's over there, even though he can't see it. Because that shrike is always watching that hawk or that falcon. That shrike is always alert because it knows it could be lunch if it's not. So one of the ways that they know where their bird is is by taking that thing out in the field with them. And they can tell whichever way its head's pointed, that's the direction the bird is. That's kind of what Peter's saying here. He's saying, look, you need to be careful. Because you and I have an enemy, we have an adversary, and he talks about it there. He says, your, en- your enemy, your adversary, your enemy, you get that? Satan is not your friend. Satan has one goal. First of all, anybody know the chief attributes of Satan? What, what his chief characteristics are? Huh? He's a liar, father of lies. He comes to do what three things? Steal, kill, destroy. You want to know what Satan wants to do in your life? Steal, rob you of joy, rob you of things that God provides for you. Kill, destroy things in your life. And, and kill, take away, literally, take, take joy, take, take contentment, take peace, take all of those kinds of things and just kill them, just destroy them in your life. He just wants to, he does, he does not care about you. And so Peter reminds those people, he says, look, you have to be alert because the devil, your adversary, the devil, and he identifies him 30 times in the New Testament, prowls around how? Like a lion. Now here's what's interesting. In the Bible, there are two main animals Satan is compared to. One is a snake or a serpent. The serpent deceives The other is a lion, which devours. And he says, you need to remember, and in this case, I think it's very, very important, which animal does he choose? The lion. Okay? Um, Okay, I'm going to run down a couple of rabbit trails real quick, and, and, and you can join me if you want. Remember what I said, Satan doesn't do anything original. Satan is a counterfeiter. He's a liar. So Satan always takes that which God has as an original and he counterfeits something that is appealing. For instance, God establishes love. Satan calls it lust and sells it as love. Um, God, um, 
Give me one. Um, Think of it. I mean, you know, think of things that, okay, you help me out then. What else does he counterfeit? Huh? Um, Yeah, he's he's an angel of light. Okay, I got to figure out where I'm going with this. Um, Yeah, he he deceives, whereas Jesus is the light of the world. He portrays himself as an angel of light. God gives you joy. What's Satan's counterfeit? Happiness. So Satan says, do this and you'll be happy. And we really want joy. God has peace. Satan counterfeits it. Um, Everything that God does, Satan has a counterfeit for. Think about this for a minute. Who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus. Who's a roaring lion seeking about who to devour you? Satan. By the way, I think it's significant that he chooses a lion. These are people who are losing their friends in the arena as they would turn to wild beasts and the real lions loose. And Peter says, let me tell you something. Just like that lion wants to devour you in the arena, Satan walks about as a roaring lion right now trying to devour you. And by the way, notice he says devour you. The idea is destroy. Um, it's, used, it's used often in Scripture. Remember the story of Moses and his stick that turns into a snake? And you remember what Pharaoh's uh, minions do? They turn theirs into snakes, and what happens? The big snake, here's the word, devours the little snakes. You remember Jonah? What happened? Jonah was, here's the word, devoured by the whale. And Peter says, you need to understand, Satan wants to devour you. He wants to consume you. Spurgeon said this. He said, you were once a, a um, oh, let me get it right. You were once a servant of Satan. We're all born sinners, right? No king willingly loses a servant. The second you said, I'm on God's side instead of Satan's side, Satan said that I'm going to destroy you. If you're not serving me, You're not serving anybody. And so Peter reminds these people that, look, whatever circumstances, suffering, difficulty, hardship, trouble comes into your life, Satan wants to use that to destroy you. And then he goes on. And he says, resist him. Stand firm in your faith. The idea is a military term. Um, What's that that movie with uh, Mel Gibson? And he's the Scottish guy. Braveheart, yeah, thank you, Braveheart. But that looked good on the thing. Was uh, Braveheart? Yeah, okay. If you've ever seen Braveheart, you remember how they fight in battle, and they take those shields and they put them up. And remember, they all get close together, so the shields kind of interlock, and they walk forward. And then when the arrows are shot, they all kneel down and use the shields to shield. You remember the scene? Everybody know what I'm talking about? Okay, some of you haven't seen it, and you don't know, but that's okay. Um, okay. The word here about resisting and standing is that concept. 
of a military locking their shields together, of locking and presenting one force of protecting itself. And he says, resist standing firm in the faith. And then he goes on to add this element of, there are other believers, you have brothers and sisters in Christ, who are going through the same thing in the world. You're not alone in this. Kids, listen to me. You're not the only Christian in the school. And you're not the only Christian in the world who's in a public school. And you're not the only Christian around who's in college or who's going through the stuff. No, no, no. You're not the only person. When you go in and you hear the doctor give you some diagnosis that you don't like, you're not the only person who's ever been in that situation. There are other brothers and sisters all across the world in Christianity that understand what you're going through. They have gone through it as well. And that's what Peter says. He says, look, remember that you have brothers throughout the world that are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You're not in it alone. There are other people who are going through this too. And then he goes on to say this. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, After you have suffered, what does he say? A little while. Now look, I understand what you're going through is not a little while. You've had a diagnosis of something and you're dealing with a long time. You, You had something come into your life and it's literally, it's something that you're going to live with for the rest of your life. I understand, in your world, it's not a little. But Peter is looking at little in context of eternity. Um, jot this verse, uh, jot this passage down, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Sometime go through this week. Those of you who struggle here, go through 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It happens to be one of my favorite passages, probably one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he ends it by saying this. And this is kind of what Peter's saying here. Um, uh, let me see. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen. Because the things which are seen, they're temporary. But the things which are not seen, they're eternal. And, P- and, and Paul wraps up 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and says, look, when you compare it all out, it's light versus all, the, all that God's going to do in glory as a result of it. And some of you have seen me illustrate it before. Let that wall, that end of that wall represent the beginning. I know there's no beginning and ending of time with God. But let that wall represent the beginning of time. Let that wall represent the end of time. Now, I understand with God, there's no beginning and end. I get that. I understand with eternity, there's no beginning. But for sake of illustration, let that be the beginning of time and that be the end of time. Here's what we're saying. We're saying that if you go all the way through and say, okay, we're going to take this being the garden, and then you let this part of the wall represent maybe the Old Testament saints. And then you let like this part of the wall right here represent Christ. And so we, we, we come to this point right here where this microphone stand is, and we say, okay, that's the cross. That's the death of Christ. That's the death. Oh, I'm sorry, Juanita. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if we let that point represent that, that was 2,000 years ago, plot so, then we end up, Comparatively, we're probably somewhere in here. So you take my whole life of 50 years right now, and there it is. 
But I got a bad diagnosis at 50 years old. Light affliction compared to weight of glory. Here's your entire life represented on the spectrum of eternity. By the way, let me help some of you. Some of you struggle with the idea of, I don't understand how God can forgive my sin, past, present, and future. If this is the cross, and this is me, this dot, and I put my faith and trust in Christ, for me, I was 16 years old. At 16 years old, and God forgave all of my sin, past, and you go, I don't understand how God forgives your present sin. Radical concept. At 16, all of my sin was present. Because this is the cross. My whole existence is future from the cross perspective. So when we say that God forgives our sin, God forgives my sin, past, present, future. In relationship to the cross, it's all future. Get that? That rabbit trail you got for free, all right? But it's important because people struggle. They say, I don't understand how God can forgive. You've got to understand, God forgave all of it. That's the beauty of forgiveness. And you go, oh, that means I can just like sin like the devil. Well, then you don't understand your salvation, and I doubt you even have it if that's your concept, honestly, because you're missing it. That's not what it's about. So that's, that's what he says. So Peter here says, you're suffering, you're going into the arena, your difficulty, your hardship, you're losing your job because you're a Christian, whatever it is, it's just a little while. It's just a little while. And then he goes on to say this, and this is the key to this whole book. Notice what he said. <clears throat> Will himself restore you? It's a word and used in the Bible and, and in, the, in the culture of the time. One idea within the culture was this. It was the mending of bones. You ever had a bone set? You ever broken something and they set it? They put a cast on it or a splint on it or whatever else, and you set it. He says, God will restore you. It's also a word in this time in the Bible, it's actually used of mending nets. Here's the idea. God, follow this, because this is going to build. God uses suffering, difficulty, and hardship to fix broken things in your life. And it may not even be stuff that you know is broken. And those of you who know the story of my finger, you know, um, I had taken this finger and jammed it playing football with a bunch of teenagers when I was a whole lot. I thought I was older. I thought I was younger than I was. I went three months just thinking it was jammed. And I finally went to a doctor because I couldn't swing a sledgehammer. And uh, come to find out, the, it literally it sat on top of the socket. And I'd done that for three months. And I had actually, the, the calcium had actually filled in the whole socket, so there was no socket left. So every time we pulled it out to put it back, it just rolled off. Okay? So it took a lot to mend this. They had to go in and do surgery and grind it out and make a new socket and put it back and put pins in it and all that kind of stuff and then pull the pins out. That was the worst part of it because he didn't tell me what he was doing. It was like, okay, so you're going to put me out? Oh, no, no, we're just going to take them out. 
and he pulled him out, and I heard him go, ee, and that was it. I was done. Uh, I was good up until that point. But when I heard it squeak, and I knew what it was, I was out of there. Anyway, I said, I'm feeling a little queasy. I think I'm just going to lay down if that's okay with you. But the point is, they had to mend it, okay? They mended it. And, and it's the idea of, that's what he's saying. He's saying, look, difficulty, struggles, hardship, suffering, God's going to use it to fix broken stuff in your life. And then he takes it one step further and notice what he says. And he says, uh, called you, restore you and make you strong. You see that idea? Make you strong? Fascinating word. Okay. Hang with me for about two minutes. The Bible is written in three languages. Hebrew is the Old Testament. There are a few passages of the Old Testament in Daniel that are written in Aramaic, but primarily it's written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. So when we get to the Bible, we have three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and then Greek in the New Testament. Peter is written in Greek, right? In the people here had a Greek Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. So sometimes what we can do is we can take a word in the New Testament and we can go back to the Greek Old Testament and find out how it's used. This is one of those words that, that really is fascinating to do with. Okay? Anybody remember the story of Moses, the Amalekites at Rephidim? Anybody remember the story? Let me remind you. It's an Old Testament story in Exodus chapter 17 where Joshua is leading the people into battle. And Moses says, I will go to the hilltop and watch over the battle. And when I raise my hands, you win. And when I put my hands down, you lose. Remember the story now? Is this helping you? And you remember what happened? Moses held his hands up as long as he could. And then... Aaron and Hur came alongside of him and helped hold up his hands. Go to Exodus 17. Let me show it to you. Uh, then King Amalekite fought with Israel in Rephidim. Moses sent him to Joshua, choose out men, go out, fight with Amalekite. Tomorrow I'll stay on top of the hill, the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went up the top of the hill. It came to pass when Moses held up his hand and Israel prevailed when he let it down. Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and they put it under him and he sat thereon. So they sat him down because they knew he couldn't keep standing. So they sat him down, kept his hands up, and then notice what it says. It says, and they took a stone and put it under him and he sat thereon and Aaron and Ur strengthened his hands. Same word that we see in Peter. And then notice what it goes on to say. The one on the other side and the other on the other side. And his hands were strengthened until the going down of the sun. Same Greek word in the Septuagint. Peter, if you will, go to this story and it helps you understand. What Peter is saying is when difficulty comes in our lives, God will use it to strengthen us. And that may be another brother or sister coming alongside of us and helping us through it. But he says, I will take that trial, circumstance, difficulty, hardship, suffering, persecution, whatever it is. And he said, first of all, I will use it to fix something that's broken in your life. 
And secondly, I will use it to strengthen you. I will use it to help you be strong in order to get through that time. And then notice what he goes on to say. I'll go back to Peter again, guys. Uh, And make you strong, firm. Only time the word's used in the New Testament. Here's the idea. Supported, reinforced. So here's what he says. He says, God will take a situation, a difficult situation or circumstance in your life. God will use it to mend and help fix things that are broken in your life, even if you don't know they're broken. He will use it to strengthen you. And then he will take that circumstance and reinforce it in your life. And then he will make it what? Steadfast. The idea is foundation. Remember the little story? Uh, What's that song little kids sing? Uh, The wise man built his house upon the rock. Sand. Yeah. Yeah, the wise man did the rock. Yeah, the foolish man did the same. Rock, steadfast. Here's Here's what Peter is arguing and telling these people at the end of this book. Difficulty comes into your life. I think it's a progressive thing. The first thing God will do is he will mend. And anytime you mend something, a bone or whatever else, it's painful, it hurts, it's difficult, it's hard. But then what happens? It starts to get stronger. And he says, then I will strengthen it. I'll use that circumstance, that situation to strengthen those, some areas in your life. And then I will firm it up. I will support it. I will build some structure around it that really makes it solid. And ultimately, I will use it as a foundation in your life to build other things on. That's what Peter says God's going to do. Whatever you and I go through, that's what Peter is telling the people God's going to do with it. And it will become a foundation. It will become something that actually becomes an incredible building point on other areas of your life if you respond in the right way. And notice what he goes on to say. And he says, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And he ends it. Uh, Go to the next passage. What's the last verse in Peter? Peace. Peter, don't you get it? People want to kill us because we're Christian. And Peter says, no, if you can embrace this, you can have peace in the midst of difficulty. You can have peace in the midst of suffering. You can have peace in the midst of listening to a doctor saying, you know, this isn't good. You can have peace when you sit down and look at your checkbook and go, there's more bills than money. You can have peace when things at work turn into be a turmoil. You can have peace when you go to that family gathering and everybody is just madder than a hen at everybody else. You can have peace when things get really hard. You can have peace when you're suffering. Why? Because you start to understand the concept and embrace the idea that, you know what? God's in control, not what I want, but in the end, it'll be best for me. And that's what he says. So a couple, couple lessons from it. I think the first thing is the idea of, remember, you've got to be on guard. You need to be on guard. Any, I think out of anybody in here, I, I, I'm guessing there's only one person in here that might know what this is. Slapped in sands, 
Anybody know what happened at Slapton Sands? Lane's the only person I, I think, can think of that would know this, if anybody. If there's anybody in here that knows this, it's Lane. Anybody know what happened at Slapton Sands? Any idea? Oh, this would be great. You're going to have a ball studying this this week. Okay? Slapton Sands. When we got ready to invade Normandy on D-Day, um, 1943, is that when, when we did it? Uh, we had to practice. So what happened was we got a hold of a beach over in England called Slapton Sands. And this, this actually was, was, was actually hidden in history for a long time until it finally came out and, and what really actually happened there. But what happened at Slapton Sands is we were using that beach for practice for D-Day when we went in. What happened was on April 28th, which about this time in the year, we were practicing, and a group of Germans boats came upon it and didn't know what was happening and attacked us. We lost 700 people that day. So before we ever started and invaded D-Day and, Nor- and, and, and all of that, 700 people had lost their life practicing for D-Day. And it was really controversial because they were afraid that if news got out about what happened, that it would jeopardize what we were getting ready to do. So they, they kept this thing really hush-hush. And it, in fact, on the 50th anniversary, they finally erected a big memorial there honoring the lives of these people who had lost their lives. But here's the, here was the irony of, of Slapton Sands. We were on guard practicing for a big battle. But the enemy came when nobody was expecting it. That's what Satan does in our lives. You can be ready for the big battles, and you can be practicing, you can be focused. You have to be ready, though, for that, all of a sudden, that, that attack when all of a sudden they're there, and nobody, nobody was ready for these guys. And by the way, some of the, some of the, depending on which account you read, the practicing was live fire practicing. So it's not like we didn't have stuff there, but it hadn't so suddenly that we didn't have a chance to respond. That's the way Satan works. And that's why Peter says, you be on your guard. Keep yourself self-controlled. Externally, be, be alert. Be, gather around you people who are on guard. And then he goes, and, and that's the idea of, remember that, look, when you're attacked, why would Satan attack you? You're a threat. So let me tell you something. When you and I start getting attacked, when we start going through a difficult time, when we start suffering for the cause of Christ, guess what? It ought to be a flag to you that God wants to do something great. God wants to use you in some great way. And Satan's doing everything he can to sidetrack that. See, the second you and I said, Satan, we're not on your side anymore. We're signing up for God's team, and we're over here. The second we did that, we put a great big bullseye on us that said, we're now his enemy, and he wants us gone. So be aware of that. 
So whatever you're going through right now, understand Satan has one goal, to take that suffering, difficulty, hardship, trouble, whatever it is, and get you bitter over it. That's all he wants to do. He can get you mad. He can get you ticked at somebody. He's happy. He can get you to be mad at that family member. He can get you all bent on shape. Hey, hey, he wins. Don't let him win. Be on alert. Be on guard. Understand. Don't let him have that battleground. Don't let him have it. And understand in your life that whatever you're going to, there is a process that God wants to do. He wants to mend first. He wants to take that difficulty, mend it. He wants to strengthen you through it. Firm stuff up and ultimately be a foundation in your life. We can look at this church history and see that played out over and over and over and over and over again. I can look at my life and I can see this played out over from the day I got out of college and went into the ministry. Within seven days of getting to my first job, I had something come into our lives that would discourage most guys from ever wanting anything to do with the ministry. Three months later, I had another deal come up. I've had it all through ministry where things have, challenges have come, where it's been, all right, you've got a choice. You either get bitter and mad, or you take the high road and say, God's going to use this somehow. And watch God use it. And those of you who know me, know my story, know that the things that are strongest in my life the things that have become foundational to me in a lot of ways started as difficult, suffering, trial, tough situations. But God used it. He mended it. He strengthened it. He brought people alongside to encourage me. He put up some support around it. And now they are a foundation for my life. That's what he wants to do. And Peter writes to these people and says, look, you know what? God will do the same thing. And he ends it by saying that. Peace. Peace. So whatever you walked in here with this morning, you're worried about your job, you're worried about money, you're worried about your family, you're worried about your house payment, you're worried about... Um, well, most of you today, i got to think about this, most of you had a pleasant ride to church this morning because you came in separate cars. Um... You know, I mean, you know, you're like, oh, there's a shower. Okay, guy, I know. Uh, all of that kind of stuff. Why? Look, all of that stuff that you are burdened about, that you are worried about, whatever the doctor told you, whatever struggle that you have, whatever that is, God wants to use it. So let him. So my challenge to you this morning is very simply this. Be at peace. God is at work. And in the end, it all works out for his glory as long as you respond in the right way. It's okay. It's okay. And Peter looks at people who are facing losing their lives and says, be at peace. It'll be okay. Okay.